0: Sunday morning to get through through it too quickly, but reading it uh, a chapter at a time on the Lord's Day gives us the opportunity to kind of get the bird's eye view. And I love what Paul says in verse 4, speaking of Christ, He's the one who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. It's glorious, isn't it? If you're a Christian, Jesus gave Himself for you, bore the wrath of God for you to deliver you from that wrath in this evil age, and we can take heart in that. So Let's go to the Lord in prayer now, and uh, then we will as always open up to Scripture and dig deep into the Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given Your Son for us. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the sacrificial death of our Savior, His substitutionary work, giving Himself for us in the place of us in our stead that he might take the punishment that we deserve. And why should we gain from his reward? We can't even give an answer other than you are gracious. Other than you are merciful. You are kind. And why do we believe? Lord, why why has the gospel come effectually, efficaciously? Into our hearts? Why has it come to us savingly and not to the world? Again, the only answer is your grace. Paul said those who were chosen attained it, the rest were hardened. Your gospel comes to us by your grace because of your own sovereign prerogative, your own sovereign choice. And our faith, our love, our hope, our trust, all of that is the product of your work in our hearts by Your Spirit. So Lord, keep us from pride, keep us from being puffed up, keep us humble, keep us in a place where we understand that we were once foolish like the world and that it is only by the grace of God that we are what we are today. So we thank You for that grace, Lord. Give us grace as a church to protect the Gospel. We see Paul's fiery zeal here for the Gospel his zero-tolerance policy when it came to distorting the gospel, saying things like, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be anathema, let him be damned, let him be accursed, devoted to destruction. Lord, may we hold to the gospel that way. May we never accept any deviation from the gospel, but may we embrace the truth. The world wants to distort it in so many subtle ways. So many subtle ways. Many groups would say salvation is by faith, it is by grace, plus works, or plus ceremony, or plus law. But the moment they add anything to grace, anything to faith, anything to Christ, they have canceled grace, they have nullified Christ, they have removed the gospel altogether and now have another gospel which is not another at all. So may we embrace the truth, may we defend the truth, may we hold fast to the truth for our good, And for your glory. Amen. Well, right. you can uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We have finally come to the last chapter of our verse-by-verse study of this wonderful little epistle. The end is in view. The end is near, right? Almost there. I've been here for a year and a half now, and I don't know if you're counting, but I've made it through almost two books now. Two books, not too bad, huh? Two short little letters. We're making some progress after all. So for this morning, we come to the opening five verses of the final chapter. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And just to give you a bit of a road map so you know where we're going, uh, there are three paragraphs or three passages in 1 John chapter 5. A paragraph, by the way, is a written unit of thought. It's a written text that contains one idea, one dominant theme. And they really become, for us, preaching text. And there are three of them here in 1 John verses 1 through 5, verses 6 through 12, and verses 13 through 21. It should take us about six to eight weeks or so to work through them, and then we will finally have completed our study of this epistle. And what a rich, rich study it has been. Three things, essentially, we've learned over and over again, but with such depth and such profundity that it's been very helpful and enriching for my soul. I hope it has been for yours as well. We know that the theme here is assurance. Assurance. John wrote this letter to combat a heresy that was posing a dangerous threat to the churches of Asia Minor, that of incipient Gnosticism. Gnosticism. That was a heresy that would challenge the church for the first few centuries. It was probably the most dangerous threat to the church in the first few centuries. Just as a side note, uh, even the idea of the canon, you know, the idea of you know, we have a marked out list of books that belong in the Bible, a form of Gnosticism was really instrumental in God's people seeking to determine that because there was a heretic named Marcion who was essentially a Gnostic heretic and he, uh, he said that only certain books belonged in the Bible such as uh, Paul's, Paul's writings and the Gospel of Luke. Nothing else belonged to the Bible, he said. and So this was a heresy that was very prevalent early on and was very uh, dangerous to the church. And even though it doesn't exist anymore, there are many like it that exist, and we'll look at that later on. But this was a dangerous heresy. John saw the dangerous nature of this heretical system, and so he wrote this letter to refute that system by outlining a series of tests by which Christians can distinguish between true Christianity and a counterfeit version, by which we can distinguish between a true Christian and a false believer. We already know that those tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. True Christians believe the truth, obey the truth, and love in truth. Those are the ways, the three ways, that you can distinguish between true Christian faith and a false version, a true Christian and a non-believer. These are essentially the test of saving faith, the test of saving faith, the test that John cycles through over and over again throughout the letter. And usually when he deals with one of these tests, he does it in one passage, one at a time. So usually we spend each week considering just one test. But there are occasions in 1 John where he brings all of the tests together in one little passage. And that's what we see this morning in verses 1 through 5. Here we see all of these three tests presented together as a coherent whole. Let me read the passage to you, 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. John writes, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father, loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, there are two terms there that I think really help us understand what this passage is about. The first term is "born of God," born of God. John uses that in verse one, and he uses it again in verse four. The second term is the word "overcomes," overcomes. In verse four, we see both terms together. Verse four says, "For whatever is born of God." overcomes the world. In this passage then, John is defining Christians as those who are born of God and those who have overcome the world. We are born again overcomers. Or to put it another way, this passage is about how to know that you are born of God. How to know that you are an overcomer. A born again overcomer. Overcomer. These are familiar concepts throughout John's letter. He's already introduced and developed these themes before. He first introduced the idea of the new birth back in chapter 2, verse 29, which says, If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. In chapter 3, verse 9, John yet again alluded to the new birth. There he says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Those born of God do not practice sin, they practice righteousness. Then in chapter 4, verse 7, he uses it again, saying, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. Christians are those who have been born of God of God. To be born of God is to have received a new heart with new affections by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit at salvation comes into the sinner, takes away his heart of stone and gives him a heart of flesh, makes him a new creature in Christ with new longings. It is to be raised up to new life, to spiritual resurrection. It's to have the life of God within us. The seed of God within us. It is to be born into the family of God. To possess the nature of God. And to be a child of God. That's what it is to be born of God. And all true Christians have experienced that glorious reality. But not only are believers born of God, but we're also overcomers. 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 That's another repeated concept in 1 John. The word overcomes, by the way, it's the Greek word nakao. It comes from the noun nike, nike. And it's where we derive the English word Nike from. It, the word means uh, to conquer, to be victorious, to prevail, to subdue, to defeat. It means to overcome through victory. Athletes wear Nike shoes on the courts in hopes to have Victory. And so that's what we are. We are victors, conquerors in Christ. I told you that all Christians should essentially just have a Nike switch on their head, right? Because we are all victors in Him. You may not think of yourself that way, especially if you know yourself well, and you know how often you fail and fall into sin and struggle and how wrecked you seemingly are. Paul felt the same way, by the way. Romans 7, what does he say? How wretched of a man I am. I'm wretched. And yet that same one knew he was an overcomer. John knew he was a sinful person, yet in Christ he's an overcomer. It's a wonderful paradox. We are victorious in Christ. John introduced that idea back in chapter 2, verse 13, where he said, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. We have overcome Satan. 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 He uses the term again in chapter 4, verse 4, where he said, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, that is the false teachers, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We have overcome Satan, we have overcome false teachers, and here in 1 John 5, it's we've overcome the world. That is to say, we have not fallen prey to their deception, to their enticement. We have victoriously overcome them in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've overcome their deception. We've overcome their delusion. And therefore, we've overcome their destruction. Their damning fate. We've overcome them in the sense that we haven't been deceived by them. We are not going to be damned with them. So we are overcomers. Those who are true Christians are born of God and they are... Overcomers. The problem is that there are many people who would claim to be born of God, many people who would claim to be overcomers, who even would sing about it in popular Christian radio, who in reality are not. In reality they are not. Many who say, Lord, Lord, but have never come to know Him. Many, as we've said before, who think they're on their way to heaven, but are really on the broad path to hell. In a state of self-deception. The good news is, we're not left in the darkness about this. We can know that we are born of God. We can know that we are overcomers. We can know that we are saved. How? How do we know that? How can you practically know with confidence that you're born of God and that you've overcome the world? Well, John answers that in these five verses by presenting three marks of an overcomer. Three marks of an overcomer. The marks of one who has truly been born of God. And these are nothing new to you. These three marks are the same essential test of saving faith that John has presented over and over again throughout the letter. And we're going to look at them in this passage. And as we consider them one at a time this morning, as always, it is imperative that we examine ourselves in light of these marks to determine if we are really overcomers or not. So, three marks of an overcomer. Number one. Number one, faith. Faith. We see that in verse 1, and again in verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever. The word pos, it means the whole of every kind. It's a comprehensive word, an all inclusive word, an exhaustive word. John is saying every single person who believes is born of God. That word believes translates to the Greek word pistuo, pistuo, and it means to trust in, to rely on, to have faith in. It means to be persuaded, so it also carries the notion of commitment. Saving faith is to be so persuaded about the truth that you commit yourself to that truth. Let me say that again. Saving faith is to be so persuaded about the truth that you commit yourself to that truth. Right? If you, we've told you before, if you stand on the edge of a window in the midst of a fire, the fireman says, I promise I'll catch you, trust me, jump. You say, I believe, I trust you, but I'm not making the commitment to jump. You don't believe. Real belief, real faith, makes the commitment. Mm. True Christians, those born of God, those who've overcome the world, are those who are so persuaded that Jesus is the Christ that they commit themselves to Christ. It is commitment. Mm. Jesus defined it that way, didn't He? Luke 14.33, He said, So then, None of you can be My disciple who does not forsake all that He has. Give up everything. That's commitment, isn't it? You can't even be a disciple of Christ unless you abandon everything to follow Him. That's complete commitment. Unwavering devotion. Total surrender to Christ as your Lord. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to believe. That's saving faith. You see, the problem today is that we have a wrong definition of faith, don't we? People say, well, you know, all you got to do is believe. You know, it doesn't matter if your life has changed, it doesn't matter how you live your life, it doesn't matter if you go to church, it doesn't matter if you read your Bible, it doesn't matter if you live in holiness or fight sin. If you just believe the truth about the gospel, you're a Christian. The problem is they are operating with a faulty definition of faith. True faith is a total, unreserved devotion of yourself to Jesus as your Lord. That's what we confess, right? Romans 10, if anyone confesses Jesus as what? Lord. And believe in your heart, God will save you. It is a confession of Him as Lord. That means if you do profess Christ as your Lord, if you do profess Him to be your Savior, but you're not committed to Him, you're not a Christian. You're not a believer. And if that's you, I would encourage you this morning, make that commitment today. Come to Christ. Yield all that you are to all that He is and then you'll find all that you need in Him. Right? You give up everything to gain everything. Total surrender. That's saving faith. This concept of believing is a very popular theme in John's writings. He uses it nearly a hundred times in the Gospel of John. And perhaps the most well-known usage of the word there is John 3.16. We all know that one, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever what, believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Faith is a common theme in John's writings. We find it again at the very end of his Gospel. you got to love John because when John writes, he just tells you the purpose of his book. With Paul, you have to figure it out on your own. John just flat out tells you what the purpose of his writing was. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he said this, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. That was the purpose of John's Gospel. He had an evangelistic purpose. The goal was to lead his readers to saving faith in Christ. Of course, in chapter 5 of 1 John, he also tells us his purpose. Look at verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The Gospel was written to lead people to faith. 1 John was written to people who already have faith, so they know their faith is real. The Gospel was written to lead people to eternal life. 1 John was written to give you confidence that you have eternal life. But faith is essential in both books. John is constantly emphasizing this necessity of faith, this Importance or centrality of faith. He uses a form of the word ten times in First John, seven times alone in chapter 5. John is concerned with faith. And here it's a present tense verb denoting continuous action. It could literally be translated like this. Everyone believing that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Or again, everyone who continues to believe, who goes on believing that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. In other words, true faith demonstrates its reality through perseverance. True faith demonstrates its validity through endurance. We don't just believe at one time. It's not merely a momentary decision. It is a lifelong commitment to Christ. We call this discipleship, right? A lifelong commitment to follow after Christ. That's what saving faith is. In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. We demonstrate, we prove, that we are true disciples of Jesus by continuing in His Word, by perseverance, endurance. And those who do not continue, what do we know about them? Chapter 2, verse 19 told us, right? They went out from us. Why? Because they were not really of us. If they were, they would have remained, but they went out to show that they were all not of us. Those who leave the faith were never saved to begin with. true believers endure. Adrian Rogers said this, The assurance of my salvation comes not from the fact that I did trust Christ, past tense, but that I am, future, present tense, trusting Christ for my salvation. Not that I did, but that I am. Paul Washer talks about the common cliche in evangelicalism. You walk up to a professing Christian, try to share the gospel with him, and he says, oh, I done did that. Already, I got that. It's like a flu shot. I already got that. I'm done. I'm good now. That's not Christianity. If you done did that, you're still doing that. He says if you did believe, you're still believing. If you did repent, you're still repenting. And if you're not believing and repenting today, you never believed and repented in the first place. True faith endures. Jesus said that in Matthew twenty four thirteen. He who endures to the end will be saved. Who's going to be saved? The one who endures. The one who continues. MacArthur says, Saving belief is not simply intellectual acceptance, but wholehearted dedication to Jesus Christ that is permanent. MacArthur's right. Saving faith is a permanent faith. It is a persevering faith. And faith, of course, as we know, has content. It has an object. Faith has content to be believed, and it has an object in whom our faith is to be found. Obviously, we know who our faith is in. It's in Jesus. It's not faith itself that saves, by the way. It's the one in whom our faith is in that saves us. Right? I could take a chair, and I could trust that it's going to hold me up, and I sit in it. My faith didn't hold me up. The chair did. My faith was just the instrument or the means that put me in a position... To be held up by the chair. And so if you believe in Christ, it's not your faith that saves you, it's Christ that saves you. Your faith was the instrumental means that put you in a position to be saved by Christ. And even that faith is a gift from God Himself. <clears throat> so faith has an object, but it also has content to be believed. And what is it that we believe? We believe that Jesus is the Christ. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that He's the Christ? Do you even know what that means? We, we use that terminology often, but a lot of times we don't really think about what it means. It just becomes so traditional, so normal for us. <clears throat> now let me start by saying this. Christ is not His last name. Right? Right? Unfortunately, that has to be said, because we use that terminology so often, and that is a biblical phrase, Jesus Christ, but we use it so often that I think we get the wrong idea sometimes. Christ is not His last name. Christ is a descriptive title defining who He is. Who He is. The word Christ, or Christos, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach, It's the English word Messiah. Those words are the same thing. You might hear people call Him the Christ or the Messiah. They mean the same thing. Both terms mean the Anointed One. The Anointed One. When we call Jesus the Christ, we're calling Him the Anointed One. It was a word used in the Old Testament to refer to the One who was chosen by God. The Anointed One was the Appointed One. It was used of... Appointing someone to a particular office. And there were three offices in the Old Testament specifically that this word was used with reference to. Those three offices were prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. So first it's used of priest in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 28 verse 41, God told Moses, speaking of Aaron and his sons, you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priest. They were anointed as priest. That's why Leviticus chapter 4 verse 3 mentions the anointed priest. People in the Old Testament were often anointed to be priests before God. But it's also used in the Old Testament with reference to prophets. In 1 Chronicles 16.22 the Lord says, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Those lines are parallel, by the way. In other words, the anointed ones were the prophets. Prophets were anointed. But of course, it's also used of kings in the Old Testament. Kings. In 1 Samuel 9 and in 1 Samuel 16, it's used of both Saul and David, both of whom were anointed to be kings over Israel. It's used again of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1, where verse 34 says, Anoint him there as king over Israel. He was an anointed king. So the word could be in reference to prophet, priest, or king. And typically, one person would hold one office. You wouldn't have a guy who held all three of them. However, all three of these offices find their fulfillment in one man. The God-man the Lord Jesus. He is our prophet, He is our priest, and He is our King. Scripture teaches that very clearly. The idea that He's a prophet, that might sound kind of weird. You say, wait a minute, don't the Muslims teach that? Well, obviously the Muslims teach that, that He's only a prophet. We're not saying Jesus is only a prophet, but He is a prophet. In Acts chapter 3, as Peter is preaching the Gospel to the Jews, He quotes from Deuteronomy 18, and he says this, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not give heed to that prophet, he shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And Peter, in that context, was applying that to Jesus. Jesus is the prophet like Moses that God has raised up, The one to whom we should give heed to everything He says. So He is our prophet. But Scripture also teaches that Jesus is our priest. Our priest. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. That's a few books to the left. Hebrews 3. The writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage a group of Jews here, a group of Hebrews to stay faithful to the Gospel. They are being tempted to go away from the New Covenant and to go back to the Old Covenant. And the writer of Hebrews, in an attempt to encourage them to stay in the New Covenant, contrasts the Old with the New. He shows that the New is better. And one way he does that is by contrasting the priesthood of the Old Covenant with the priesthood of the New Covenant. So Hebrews 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Who is Jesus? He is our high priest. He is our priest. Now go to chapter 4, Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Hebrews 4:14. 4, Our sympathetic high priest. The one who was tempted in every way as we, yet without sin. And therefore the one who can give us access with confidence to the throne of grace. He is our priest. So that's clear. He's the priest. But what do priests do? What do priests do? Go to chapter 5, verse 1, and that will answer the question for us. Hebrews 5, 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. What do priests do? They offer sacrifices. They offer sacrifices. And typically, the priest in the Old Testament would be the offerer. He would bring a lamb or a bull or a goat. He would cut its throat, pour its blood out on the altar as a symbol of atonement. He was the offerer of the sin offering. However, Jesus, this is unique, Jesus as our High Priest is both the offerer and the offering. The offerer and the offering. He offered Himself to God as the payment for our sin, as the One who would make atonement. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our Priest. So back to 1 John 5 now. He's our prophet. He's our priest. But Scripture also teaches that He's our King. We believe that, don't we? Just think about the name of our church, right? Christ is King Baptist Church. Jesus is King. Listen to what Psalm 2 says about the Messiah. Psalm 2, verse 2. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. There's that word, Mashiach, Messiah. Then in verse 6, God says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In other words, God's anointed was the one whom He installed as king, the one whom He established as king. And who is this Messiah? Who is this king? Well, verse 7 tells us, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord... He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2 verse 7. In other words, the King, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is the Son of God. Who is the Son of God? Jesus. Jesus then is our prophet, our priest, and our King. He is the Savior of God's people. The word Jesus, by the way, if you want to know what the other word means, means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh saves. It's used, Matthew 1.21 tells us why He's called that. Because He will save His people from their sins. He's Jesus because He is Yahweh who saves. So His name then means anointed Savior. That's who He is. He's our anointed Savior. Charles Spurgeon, by the way, would agree with this conclusion. Answering the question, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ or that He's the Anointed? Spurgeon said, first, that He's the prophet. Secondly, that He's the priest. Thirdly, that He's the King of the church. He's the prophet because He's the one who teaches us the will of God. He's the one that teaches us the way of salvation. He's our priest because He gave Himself for our sins to make satisfaction on our behalf. He is our King because He delivers us and rules over us as our Lord and our Master. So here's the question then. Do you trust Jesus and the way of salvation taught by Him? Do you believe in the way of salvation taught by Jesus as your prophet? Do you trust alone in the sacrifice that Jesus has offered for you as your priest? Do you willingly and lovingly yield to Him as your master and His sovereign rule over you as your king? If you can answer yes to those questions, Charles Spurgeon says, Dear friend, you have the faith of God's elect. You can be confident that you're a Christian. Confident that you're a believer. So that's what John means then. When he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ... Is born of God. Everyone who trusts his way of salvation, everyone who trusts in his finished sacrifice, everyone who submits to his rule and reign over them, everyone who does that is a true believer. They have been born of God. So there are many Old Testament passages then that use that word for Messiah. But even in passages where the word's not used, there is this messianic expectation oozing from the text. You go to Genesis 3.15 and you get the promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. You get to 2 Samuel 7. God promises David he would sit one of his descendants on the throne forever. Those are messianic passages. Those are passages that promise a king who is coming that will righteously reign and deliver his people from sin. And we know that that king, that Messiah, has already come. And that is why we believe that Jesus is the Christ. And all believers do that. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples the most important question that any of us will ever answer. There in verse 15, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter correctly answered on behalf of the 12, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the right answer, isn't it? You're the Christ, the Son of God. The Anointed One. Then Jesus said He would build His church upon the rock of that confession. Not Peter, but the confession of Peter. And all who make that confession with Peter savingly can know they are born of God. Born of Him. The new birth produces this faith. The idea is not that all who believe in Jesus become born of God, it's that they already are born of God. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. It comes before faith. It produces faith. In other words, we're not born again because we believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus because we're born again because God has first given us new life. That's why in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, when Jesus responded to Peter's confession, He said this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood do not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Everyone who makes a saving confession of Jesus as the Christ does so because God has graciously regenerated his heart and revealed the truth about Christ to him. God does this. You don't get this on your own. You don't intuitively arrive at this. You don't philosophically get there. You don't get there from being taught by other men. You get there because the Holy Spirit sovereignly opens your eyes to the truth about Christ. So all who believe, who continue believing, give evidence that they are already born of God. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now who would deny that? Who would deny that? Well, obviously the Jews today in a large part deny that. They rejected Him as their Messiah. But in the context, Paul specifically has in mind the Gnostic heretics. And in particular, a false teacher named Serenthus. Remember, I told you that Serenthus taught that Jesus was not Himself the Christ. He was merely a man empowered by the Christ Spirit. The Christ Spirit came upon Him at His baptism, but then departed from Him at His death So Jesus isn't the Christ, He was just empowered by the Christ. That is damning heresy. That is a heretical lie. John says true Christians believe that Jesus is the Christ, not that He's empowered by the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. You say, well, no one really teaches that today. But in reality, there's actually an even more subtle and dangerous form of this lie today that even goes under the name of evangelicalism. There are those who bear the name evangelical who embrace a lie similar to this. There is this liberal concept today referred to as deconstructionism. The idea is that I'll just kind of take all the beliefs I had growing up as a Christian, I just kind of get rid of all of them and reconsider all of them and try to formulate beliefs for myself. Now on the surface, that seems innocent enough. That's Yeah, you should think about it. You shouldn't just believe what your parents taught you. You should think about it for yourself. But the problem is, they don't let the Scripture determine what is true. They let themselves determine what is true. They have arbitrarily established themselves as the standard. Some of these people deconstruct all the way. They become atheists. Others deconstruct and then later rebuild a little bit and become kind of liberal. But there are even people who claim to be evangelical, who deny the inerrancy of the Bible, who teach... That there is no substitutionary atonement. Jesus didn't die to bear the wrath of God. They don't like, You know why? Because they don't like that idea. And therefore it can't be exactly what God is teaching. And some of these same people then teach this. Here's how they, they kind of reconcile this. They would say that salvation is in, G, in, in Christ alone, but not in Jesus alone. And you say, wait a minute. How do they reconcile that? Here's how they do it. Through the theory of what they call the universal Christ. The universal Christ. They say that there is this universal Christ who has revealed Himself in many ways. Jesus of Nazareth is one way, one revelation of this universal Christ. But even Muslims can find the universal Christ on their own path and in their own religion. There are popular guys, there's a popular guy today who wrote a book about this. He was ordained as a Roman Catholic. Now he's a spiritual author. But his ideas are very influential even among evangelicals. This is... Dangerous. This is the lie of Sarinthus repackaged. It is essentially postmodernism of the worst kind. It's pluralism of the worst kind, because it comes under the guise of evangelical. So you quote to these people John fourteen six No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. They say that was the universal Christ in him speaking. Not Jesus, it was the Christ. They create this dichotomy. It's a damning lie. True Christians, on the other hand, believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. Remember chapter 2, verse 22? John said, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. Anyone who rejects the truth about Jesus, anyone who denies that He is the Christ, is an Antichrist. He's against Christ. He's a false teacher, a false believer, and He is not born of God. So that's the first mark then. That's the first way to know that you're a born again overcomer. Faith. You believe the truth about Christ. And we'll look at that again in verses 4 and 5 next week. But for now, let me quickly give you a second one. Second mark of an overcomer. Love. Love. Look at verse 1 again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God... And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. (coughs) With the word and here, John is introducing the second mark. Not only do true believers believe that Jesus is the Christ, but they love. They love. Again, the word love is is a present tense verb, continuous action. They go on loving. Christians consistently and constantly display acts of love. He says, whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Obviously, the Father refers to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Christians love God. Told you last week that a basic definition of a Christian is someone who loves God. That goes without saying. We love God the Father. But the one who loves the Father, John says, also loves the child born of him. Now, who does that refer to? Well, there are two possibilities. It could refer to Christ. Christ is the only begotten of the Father. He's the Son of God, the one eternally begotten of Him. <coughs> Obviously, true Christians love Christ. In John 15:23, Jesus said, He who hates Me hates My Father also. In John 8, He said, If, you, if God were your Father, you'd love Me because I've come from God. So if you hate Christ, you hate God. If you love God, you love Christ. It's a package deal. True Christians love the Son of the Father. So it could refer to Christ. But it could also refer to believers. To Christians. The children of God. Plural. John clearly refers to believers in verse 2. Look at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. The children of God. That's Christians. True believers. All of us. are in Christ so John is saying then that we love God we love Christ and we love believers we know back in chapter 3 verse 1 he said that see how great a love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are that's who you are as a Christian that's our identity we are God's children so John is saying we love the believers the text here could literally read as the New King James Version does. It says there, Everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. It's the word Gana'o. Gana'o, it means to beget, to bring forth, to give birth to. Christians are begotten of God. John literally just said that, didn't he? He literally just said, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is what? Born of God. James 1.18 says this, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth, or begot us, through the word of truth. We are begotten of God through the word of God. We are His children. So John could be saying that, that all who love God the Father love Christians, other believers. So which is it? Is John referring to Christ here, or is he referring to Christians? Probably both. Both. If you love God, you're going to love all the children born of Him, including His essential son and His adopted sons. You're going to love Jesus, and you're going to love other Christians. We love God, we love Christ, and we love those born of God in Christ. Back in chapter 4, verse 20, John made the point that you can't love God if you don't love your neighbor. Now he makes the point that if you do love God, you will love your neighbor. You will love his children. If you love the begetter, you love the begotten. If you love the Father, you love the child of Him. If you love God, you love His people. If you love God, you're going to love those who are loved by God. Simple enough, right? It's impossible then to love God and not love His children. If you say you love me and you hate J. Dot and Chloe, you don't love me. Right? We'll have to add the end of the bunch. If I say I love you but hate your children, you're not going to like that. You're going to kick me out of your home. So you cannot love God and not love his children. Back in chapter 2 verse 10, John said, "The one who loves his brother abides in the light." Chapter 3 verse 14, he said, "We know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brethren." Chapter 4 verse 7, everyone who is born of everyone who loves is born of God. How do you know you're born of God? How do you know you've overcome the world? Because you love. You love God. And you love His children. We love everyone who believes with us that Jesus is the Christ. So that's the second mark. And we'll look at the third one next time. We'll leave that for next week. But for now, two marks of an overcomer. Two marks. Faith. And love. Those born of God, those who've overcome the world, are the ones who believe that Jesus is the Christ and the ones who love God and the child born of Him. So here's the question then Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Are you trusting in His finished work? Have you yielded yourself and committed yourself to Him as Messiah and King and Lord? And do you see that faith in Christ manifesting itself in love for God and His people? A love that we've noted before that is sacrificial, self-forgiving, self-debasing. If these characteristics are the mark of your life, then you can be confident that you're born of God and that you've overcome the world. Do you have that confidence this morning? More on that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have yet again in this passage laid out for us with clarity the marks of a true believer, the marks of a true Christian. If Your Word is so clear on the subject, it leaves no doubt, no darkness for us to stumble around in. We can be in the light. We can have assurance, boldness and confidence before You if we see these things in our life, So I pray, Lord, that as a church, we would pursue faith in Christ, love for the people of God, and therefore assurance of our own salvation, all for Your glory. And if there's anyone here this morning who's not in Christ, O God, that You would convict them of their sin, that You would show them the glory of the Savior, and they would come to know this salvation and this assurance that is only for those in Him. We thank You for Your Word. We pray we would honor it with our lives. To your glory we pray. Amen.